You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I'm really excited about this one. I'm joined today by a frequent collaborator, uh, Carter Smith-Stepper, who is uh, uh, joining me to talk about sacred spaces. This is a show topic that has been sort of stewing in the back channels of the network uh, for some time. And I particularly want to send a shout out to a really great friend of the show, um, Elton, uh, who emails me frequently um, with like really cool links about awesome music and uh, and really interesting articles. And and, uh, and he sort of, I think, stoked the fires of this episode behind the scenes. And so uh, Carter and I are going to um, talk about just the concept of sacred space uh, when it comes to sort of worship practices. And so, um, Carter, how are you doing, first of all? I'm doing great, Danny. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's always great to to see you and uh, and to hear you. And you have a a really great perspective to bring to all shows, uh, but you have a pretty interestingly unique perspective to bring to this one. Uh, we'll sort of go into the details later, but do you want to talk just a little bit about your what you do and how it's related to this uh, this general subject? Sure. Um, aside from doing some study on it in the past. Um, as a priest, I do liturgy, and so I, I have to think about space a lot and movement because um, uh, Anglican, which is my tradition, uh, liturgies requires more movement than the typical uh, church might be used to. But um, I think more what you're referring to is that I actually am bivocational. I work in construction, carpentry largely. And then in addition to that, to add a third element to all this, um, we actually have possession of a old historic church building that we are in the process of, of renovating pieces of as we go along and can, and use it as a church at the same time. Um, so I, I uh, think about it probably more than most people do. <laughs> um, with an old limited space kind of building, there's a lot to think about in terms of modernizing and making it functional. Yeah, I'm really interested in hearing some details about that. I, I in the past, have gone to um, churches that have you know, been occupying old buildings, and there's something really kind of like uh, there's a lot of really great aesthetic potential in an old historic building. There's just something kind of awe-inspiring about the architecture, right? Um, but um, at that same time, there is the um, limitations in terms of sometimes they're not safe to be in. Right. <laughs> and, and sometimes yeah. it's too expensive to paint the ceiling. Right. Uh, and so there's all those kind of tensions you have to sort of navigate. Uh, that is, uh, I'm really interested in hearing your, your perspective and, and your sort of experiences with this. Um, and just like in general, I'm somebody who's interested in space as, as kind of a, um, a reflective, uh, a thing that reflects what we, our ideals and our ideologies. Right. But also, mm-hmm has this formational uh, effect on us too. We are sort of in some ways formed um, by the 
spaces that we occupy in that we have to sort of adjust our movements to fit those spaces, right? So just at that very basic physical level, um, the spaces kind of form what we end up doing on a habitual day-to-day basis, right? And so this is something right. that I'm kind of really just super interested in as a, as a concept. In fact, going back almost 10 years ago exactly at this point, uh, by the time this gets released, my uh, I will have defended my dissertation. <laughs> I just realized it's a decade ago now. Uh, so, but the anniversary? <laughs> I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure that Case Western Reserve would love to forget that ever happened, right? But, um, but, uh, but, my interest in that goes back to my dissertation. I wrote about um, educational. I, I wrote about Jewish American fiction and particularly mm-hmm. fiction about um, higher education. And so the thing I was sort of interested in is the way in which ideologies about higher ed kind of are encoded into the physical descriptions of buildings like that and the subsequent conflict, uh, ideological conflicts when uh, people who aren't part of that mainstream culture encounter these spaces. And, and so right, that's sort of, right. uh, that's sort of what I was interested in. Um, but, and, but I think that those kinds of like general questions about space are also applicable, probably even more so to worship spaces and sacred spaces, um, which open up an entirely, like entirely unique and new areas uh, of sort of, uh, of, of implications, I guess, for, for that conflict that's going on there. Um, and so I just want to kind of begin with you, Carter, and I want you to tell me a little bit, you, you've done some kind of research, uh, like academically, uh, in this field before, um, in addition to your sort of practical experience. And so why don't you kind of start with your sort of, uh, the theoretical, uh, and, uh, and what you have to add to this. When I was studying for, um, the priesthood, I took some time to, uh, to look at this in reference to liturgy, um, or what, um, what the, the, the text I was reading referred to as the language of space, right? Um, cause I, I, I I very much resonate with what you were talking about on how this is reflective of where we are, who we are as people. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because um, space is communicative. It, it says something, but it, it particularly says things that impact us so powerfully, if subtly, because it's both aesthetic and practical at the same time, right? Um well, at any rate, I also took a little bit of time. I did a, I did my MA thesis on um, in grad school on embodiment, and so I, I had a, a short chapter on um, on sacred spaces in there. But um, the thing that is, and I've taught on it a little bit, but the thing that that again I, I come back to is um, that a space both communicates something aesthetically. Right, we're trying to communicate something about what the space is meant to be, mm-hmm. how it's meant to like be understood, um, whether it's pleasing, right? But at the same time, it has to be functional, um, whether that's worship space or a classroom space. And I was a teacher for uh, several years, so I get that aspect of it too. Mm. Um, and it's so intrinsically um, sensory our, uh, that I think it... Um, what I've discovered is, is that again, it's, it's, it's so strange because it's subtle and we don't always think about it, but we all know in sort of intuitively that, um, that we respond to certain kinds of spaces, uh, without thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's why it's so powerful is because it's not like we're reading. It's not like we're engaging with text and having to grapple with an idea directly. It's something that happens, 
um, in an indirect and subtle way so that it's, um, we don't always understand what's happening or how it's happening. Yes. um, I'm thinking about like um, the famous David Foster Wallace speech, uh, This is Water, where he kind of opens with the metaphor of two little fish swimming through water and they don't even realize there is such a thing as water. It's just such a, a part of their natural environment that they don't even realize that their entire life <laughs> is sort of like drawn from it. And, and so I think our, our inhabitation, the way we inhabit at least spaces uh, actually has a similar effect, but go ahead. Yeah. The example I used to use with my students is when you go into a hospital, mm. um, you have, you have a response to that, you know, even if you've never been in a hospital before, you, you have the sense of, almost unease, I think. And I don't know if that's because it's the, the lack of color, right? Because there were so many things are white because it has, needs to be sterile and, you know, cl- clearly clean. Um, or if it's, um, maybe it's just in the back of your mind, you know, there's sick people there, but still there's something about those, uh, or say, you know, for those who watch the office, going into an office space with cubicles, uh, between the fluorescent lights and the compact um, miniature spaces that are kind of private, but not really private, that people are required to work in, um, it, it's, it's immediately impressive yeah. to, to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it seems to me that um, that beauty or the lack thereof, while always somewhat subjective, and, and that's, of course probably a debate beyond this discussion whether to be objective or subjective but but the um any kind of beauty uh, uh aesthetic beauty um we respond to that or we respond to the lack of it mm. and it's it's very much a rationalist sort of a, a, a modernist idea that we can have something like a, a plain blocky cinder block square space and not be affected by that. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that um, whether it's through sight, through sound, through touch, through where we place our bodies and how we move them, um, our, our minds are, are, are in, intrinsically linked to our body and to our senses. And so um, the way we experience our spatial awareness is going to have an, uh, a beneficial or adverse effect on our minds. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so, I mean, you, you go through a maze <laughs> and you become chaotic or scattered and thought, I mean, you, you know, you're a teacher. If your desk is cluttered, yeah, it's harder oftentimes to focus and to do the tasks that you have given yourself to do. And, And again, this isn't just, I mean, this is proven through neuroscience, how, um, how our, our sort of, uh, use of our bodies affects us mentally. Um, and then I think it's theologically supportable as well. When we look at, um, when we look at, at, at scripture, we do see this idea that, um, there is this intrinsic unity. It's not. It's not as dualistic as I think we are. We often tend to read our, our tradition, but rather th- there's a intrinsic unity to the human person, whether we're talking mind, body, soul, whatever. And what happens to one will affect the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Are we so, inhabit physical space, right? And and that's part of our our actual lived experience. It isn't um it isn't meaningless in that way. It's it's part of what makes us who we are. And yeah, and going back to uh, some of the things you said that I think really um, stand out to me. When you walk into say um, an office building, there's a really great scene in a otherwise maybe mediocre movie by North and Orson Welles uh, based on Franz Kafka's The Trial. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. There's a really interesting scene where it's very Kafka-esque. You walk into this giant, like open, completely open, like office building room um, where it's just desks very close together and everybody's typing on old manual typewriters. And you get the sense that Everybody, every individual person has been kind of dissolved into the machinery of, of whatever bureaucratic do they're doing in that a uh, bureaucratic business they're doing in that. And so, yeah, the the that's a really interesting illustration of the way the space actually changes the person as they enter it, right? Um, and uh, and and has them kind of form and or morph their their being into something different a little bit while they're occupying that space. And I'm also interested in when you talked about. Uh, and this may be more obvious in worship spaces, but when you have a space that uh, you you design it in a way to sort of teach people what you want them to know, and a very sort of simple answer is right above me is our chapel here uh, in, at the college, at Mount Aloysius College that I work at. Throw a little plug out there whenever I can. Uh, and uh, in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, we have this really beautiful chapel right above me. And when you walk in, like many um, Catholic churches, the stained glass windows go through the life of Jesus, right? And, and the sort of stations of the cross, right? And and it's like literally pedagogical. Like That's like, for if even if you're uh, illiterate and can't read the text, you could sort of get the story um, of Jesus that the church thinks is important for you to know uh, by just the way the space is, is designed in that way. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. Um, and it's obvious in those kinds of spaces, less obvious in the design of classrooms. Um, like this, I'm right. teaching a very old building and the classrooms are designed that reflect teaching practices from when they were built, right? Um, and in that time, um, it's a it's a kind of a rectangular square box. Uh, the students are lined up in individual chairs on one side. I'm in the front. Uh, there's something between us. There's a blackboard behind me, and it's designed with this idea that I'm telling them things that they don't know, and they're writing them down, right? Um, and it kind of really it's makes a lecture it, hall. It, it's a lecture hall essentially, and it, and it really makes it difficult to do more sort of. Um, you know, discussion-based or dialogue-based um, learning, which is what I tend to do more of. And I've had to sort of adapt some teaching practices to make that kind of, to overcome that. But it, my teaching would work much better around a table, right? And that just doesn't exist right. um, in, in in the buildings that I teach in, right? And so, but yeah, you can see a, a, a tension in ideology there uh, in the way that this space is designed, right? And it sets an expectation of what the students are supposed to be. And for me to complain that they may be passive in their education, the space is in some ways designed to allow that uh, and to encourage that even. I, I've got a, I've got an example of that actually, because I, I did teach in a school for a while that um, high school where they, I mostly taught in those rooms where it had rows of tables and I was up with a podium and a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. Right. But then there were two classrooms that had, these large round tables you could get like 14 kids around a single table um so what i would do is when i um i taught history so it's kind of expected that it's more 
monologue, mm-hmm. but I thought that I thought that it could be taught more. Um, I, I thought that history could be taught around the around those tables and that kind of conversant style. So, what I did is I would get the students bought in on this, and we. Um, we would go through it once or twice where we would do a, Hey, we're doing a round table discussion today. And within two minutes, they'd have the room reoriented. They'd move the tables around into certain spaces mm. and get them into a circle. Just from my own observation, the days when we did that versus the days when we tr- had a discussion and kept the tables straight, they did more naturally engage when they were oriented in a round table setting. It it was, it it was uncanny. Like I I could get them to engage in, in with things oriented differently, but they naturally and easily engaged when they were sitting around looking at each other. Um, It was, it's kind of remarkable and maybe, you know, some of that could just be sociologically they're trained at both types. And so they're kind of used to what to do in a certain setting, but, Mm -hmm. um, but the, the shift, the, the sort of um, we'll call it the geography of the room, the Mm -hmm. geographical shift meant something to them. And it, it sort of triggered a response of, Oh, this is what we're doing today (laughs) and that's interesting honestly the fact that you have them uh, you know do the rearranging themselves i mean that's that's a a rad that's a rather liturgical practice right when you think about it you're getting up having them move things move the furniture around the room which uh they're moving their own conception of the room while they're doing it and it's actually kind of an interesting uh uh activity there and so yeah that's that's really cool and i know that there's like jokes about you know students dread it when teachers move uh things into a circle and all that sort of thing well students dread (laughs) lots of things that are good for them right (laughs) You know, let's, let's, yeah. let's not lower that's half the, the bar. That's half the fun of being a teacher. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not lower the bar to, to eliminate everything. That <laughs> Today I'm going like. to torture you kids, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You've put me through hell, and now I'm going to return the favor. <laughs> so, I never go there. I never go there. But, um, you know, that that's really great stuff, though. Let's uh, let's shift it to the, the topic of the, the podcast, though. We're going to kind of really focus this kind of conversation on sacred spaces, because when – Honestly, um, on some level, the stakes are higher when you're talking about someone's spiritual life rather than just some sort of like utilitarian uh, practice, right? So in some ways, um, the the design of sacred spaces – um, is to me more important uh, in the law in the eternal uh, from the eternal viewpoint here, right? Uh, and so, um, let me let's let me talk or have you talk a little bit about your church. I, I think it's just a fascinating um, thing. And to preface the re- maybe the reason I'm so um, interested in what you're doing is a great church that I went to um, back in Cleveland uh, when I when I lived there and uh, is in the near West Side. It's now called West Side Alliance Church, but it was uh, Metro. Back then, and uh, we were in this nasty old building. <laughs> this is really gross little <laughs> building, I gotta say. But um, um, and it was someone at some point had painted like a blue color with like cheap puffy clouds on the ceiling of the sanctuary and it, and, and if it had been oh, done no. nicely it would have been okay but it looked terrible, right? And, and so there was something really kind of cheap and gross about the space. But I will say that. 
it became such a common, like we're all living this hell together in this building that's sold together by <laughs> duct tape, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. It actually had some sort of like group forming uh, effect on us as, as a congregation, I feel like. Um, and it kind of really did open up the space to people who were not so like high, high church, high culture, right? Um, this mm. was a space where people who lived in the kind of inner, the, the poorer parts of the inner city that we were in, um, could feel more like less, uh, whatever, less like a sore thumb, uh, in there. And they sort of feel mm. like they're not too, they're not shamed to be in a space like that. Right. So the space was humbled in such a way that opened it up to a certain demographic. Right. At the same time, it repelled a certain demographic, right. There's, there's sort of a tension you have to navigate there. Um, And so this has always been a really fascinating um, topic for me. And I still love that place. Um, And, uh, and they've got a new building now, which is also really interesting in its own, uh, in its own right. But um I want to shift it to you. That's that's my the reason I'm so interested in what you're doing. Yeah. So why don't you talk yeah. a little about what you're doing? And, and could I take a minute, just a couple minutes, to just kind of lay some theological groundwork sure, yeah. for for space more? Because I didn't say enough. I don't think enough about it earlier. Um, I think it's notable that we. Okay, so I th- the reason I want to do that is because um, I think we very much bought into the idea that space is arbitrary and mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter that much. And it's we we've leaned like I said. There's this balance between aesthetic and function, mm-hmm. and I think we've leaned societal or culturally. It's broader than just our society, but culturally we've leaned into the function side of it. How many people can we fit in, and how can we make sure that we're meeting fire code so they can exit? <laughs> right, <laughs> like that. That's the most important thing, which is. Why? While some people may disagree with me, I think the arena style for a church is inappropriate. I think it's just bad architecture for for church. Well, and you know, we could argue about that, but you know, <laughs> that's what we're that's what we're doing here. There's like a there's an ideological conflict there, right? With those right those suburban like those sort of ninety styles um, suburban mega church things that were yep. like in old warehouses or whatever that they refurbished. Um, oh yeah. They still do it around here. <laughs> yeah. Th- but those <laughs> were, <build> them. <laughs> those are like reflective of a certain like suburban, like mall culture, uh, like consumer mindset, um, church growth spectators. model, right? Spectators. Right. And so spectator. it, it was appropriate for that kind of like church growth mentality. Right. Um, and, and particularly right. when you want to attract young families and, you know, I could just, wall off a corner of this and make a whatever a, a gym or something in it and youth group right. is, is done for me right and so um yeah there, <laughs> there is like an ideology that valued that kind of space and you're saying what that ideology is neglecting is something it shouldn't it's something important so go on with that and so um it's it's notable that god seems if, if we take the scriptural account god seems to think the same thing um, because he's, I mean, if we want to, like, that's, that's folks, to, that's the ultimate appeal to authority. If you're interested in rhetoric, yeah, sure, sure is. Um, we tend to, well, think about it. Think about how much, um, of the old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, we have a tendency to skim over, uh, take a little time to go read through Exodus and read how many chapters are about the construction of the tabernacle. Mm, yeah. It's ridiculous comparatively we get like a couple chapters for the law 
and several chapters for the Exodus. On the whole, I think there's, I haven't done the count, but I'm pretty sure there's more chapters about the construction of the tabernacle than any of the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And then the temple later. And when we actually examine those structures, what we discover is that they are built with a very specific design in mind for a specific purpose. Like we have the outer court, which is for, um, it's like these ascending levels of purity, right? We have the outer court, which is for everybody. We have um, the vestibule area, which is for um, the uh, the pure, right? So like Jews can go to that part, but Gentiles or non-Jews cannot. Then we have the inner sanctuary, right? Which has got gold and images, um like images of Eden, basically like uh, pomegranate trees and and cherubim and animals um, along with, you know, uh, the candelabra, the incense and the, um, the table of showbread, etc. Then from there you go into the most holy place, the inner sanctuary where only the high priest is able to go. The priest can go in the sanctuary, only the high priest into the inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant is and God is right. The, the, Shekinah glory, right? Mm-hmm. That's all again communicative. There's um, not only this ascending purity, right? The the less pure to the more pure. There's also communicated along the way uh, this cosmic vision. There's very much this. Um, it's, you talked about the, the the puffy clouds on the blue, right? <laughs> well, in in, in in the tabernacle and temple, there was bluish purple up above with. Um, with uh, threaded with other colors that would look like the night sky, right? There's a, and then with the the garden imagery along the the, the walls, it very much seems the a lot of um, Old Testament scholars seem to think is that this is communicating not only Eden but also a cosmic. It's like a microcosm of creation, mm. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's we're, I'm just scratching the surface, but but uh, all of this is to say like there's. There's multiple layers and levels of communication happening within the the Old Testament temple. Yeah. It, including, but not limited to, who's included and who's excluded. Yeah. And that's which a, I think is I'll, also I'll, important. We'll get to that later, but yeah, that's okay. Uh, we can come back to that. Yeah, there's just in terms so of know, churches, I want to talk about that too. Yeah, there's <laughs> a just down the road. I a few weeks ago threw this out on Twitter, and I got some really interesting responses. And one of them is about that. So we'll get to those Twitter responses in a little bit. Okay, but go ahead. Perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah. Um, so then, going through uh, early Christians, I think uh, on one level. Uh, there's always this pull back and forth, right? Early Christians just use whatever buildings were available. But <laughs> it's one of those things because students would often push back on me about this. Um, and I am going to get to the building I'm working on. I promise. Yeah, but, no, no, this, um, is, this is great. Would, yeah. So students would often bring up, well, it doesn't matter. You can worship God anywhere. Yeah. I'm like, well, sure. Uh, yeah, you can you can like the the Celts, like the the early Irish Christians. You could just stick a cross in the field and say, "Well, this is church today because this is where we can meet and not get killed or whatever." <laughs> um, like you can worship in a gas station, but if you have the choice, should you? <laughs> right? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Given the choice, do the best you can with the space you have. <laughs> And so Christians would take early, you know, they would take whatever spaces they could, the, like the Basilica churches, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't just 
use them in a purely functional sense, they would adapt them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when uh, um, Augustine of Canterbury wrote back to Gregory the Great and said, hey, um, people are becoming Christians in these Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. What should we do with their old temples? Gregory said, clean them out, sanctify them, and make them churches. Um, were they built to be churches? No. Can we make them churches? Absolutely. So the, all of that is to say that that um, Christians would take whatever spaces they could, but then they would change them, they would shift them, sometimes subtly, sometimes obviously, and eventually we get the high point of this, which is things like the, the Gothic architecture of the High Middle Ages, right? Mm-hmm. Which is so um, bonk, bonk on the head explicitly <laughs> communicating specific things about God and in terms of um, the, the long length, which is the holiness aspect that we get with the temple, right. the east facing of churches, looking for the Lord's coming based on Matthew 24, 28. Um, the cruciform shape of the building, which is again, that's the bonk bonk on the head part, right? Like, <laughs> do, like the doy, this is what this is. The church, right? To the, to the height. I mean, you've been in a Gothic church, I'm assuming yeah. at some point. Yeah. The height is overwhelming and it's meant to communicate that God is utterly transcendent Yeah, over small humans. Right. Um, so all of that is to say that again, earlier Christians understood this, but somewhere along the line and probably, probably through various strains of the enlightenment and rationalism, um, we've swallowed a lot of that whole and not so much rejected it as forgotten that that issue ever even existed. Yeah. Uh, let me, so. let, let me follow up before you, we move into, um, yeah, please your own do. church because, um, I, I think that, uh, I'm anticipating, uh, obje- objections from particular kinds of people. Right. So one will be, you're referencing things in sort of the Pentateuch, right? Um, so there are people who draw clearer distinctions between Old Testament and New Testament. And so, um, when they, and so there are people who will say things about like, we're the body, like the body, like we are the church now, like our physical bodies. Um, and so how do you, I mean, what would you say to folks who would sort of reject what you're, they might use this horrid, horrid term, Judaizing. You ever, I, I hate when I hear, whenever I hear someone use that term, I, I, I just run away, right? It's a little <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, it's a little, it's a little terrible thing to say in anywhere, but particularly church. But, um, but, uh, but I, I have heard that term applied to the kind of thing you're talking about, right? And so, um, what would you say to that person? And just so if it's not clear enough, I'm I'm not on that side <laughs> of this debate, right? Sure. Uh, but uh, but I'm just about. voicing that 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 debate does exist. So, what what would you say to that? Well, I I, I would start by by pointing out agreement that yes, um, it, individuals are the body of Christ and are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. which is a key thing. It's not individuals so much as, as the church as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Full agreement there. And I would say that um, as I transition then into pushing back, I'd say we have to acknowledge that th- there is a certain level of prioritizing, right? Again, um, we are able to worship anywhere. Mm-hmm. So yes, if we're, you know, if we have to meet in a pub or a coffee shop or a old abandoned gas station or a 
parking lot. Like if that's where we have, then let's use it fine yeah. and do the best we can with what we have. I mean, mo like so many church plants have to meet in uh, or young churches have to meet in schools, right? Or, right. or like I said, coffee shops, that kind of thing. I've been to those churches um, too. I'm yeah. Not, I'm not condemning that or, or dissing that because of certainly we can worship God in those spaces. My stronger pushback though, is that, um, we are just as embodied now as we were in uh, the second millennium BC when they built the tabernacle or right. however that works with BC. Anyway, <laughs> um, we're just as embodied as they are. And we're just as embodied as the, the people of God before Christ came. And if what we're saying about embodiment is true, that it's intrinsic, that it's uh, bound up and integrated with the rest of who we are, that we are affected by spaces, that spaces train us, they teach us, um, spaces combined with rituals actually, um, almost hesitate to use this, this terminology, but they, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not, uh, it's not brainwash. It's, it's a better term for that. They, they, um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, 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 it's a form of training or, or, um, non-rational, non-cognitive response. Yeah. Right. And, um, and, uh, we, in other words, begin to embody the very things we're doing. Yeah. Right? It's like the formation thing that James K.A. Smith Thank writes you. about. Yeah, yeah. Formation. It forms yeah. us. Right. So as we're, as we're behaving in a space, we begin to, uh, that begins to inhabit within us. Right. Yeah. Um, because, and, and so that's where I would push back and say, our anthropology hasn't changed. If mm. our anthropology hasn't changed, then the need to recognize the importance of space hasn't changed. Yeah. Therefore, it's not Judaizing to say that how we orient ourselves and, and, and design our spaces doesn't, that does matter. Yeah. It has to matter. And we have to see that it matters because otherwise we are creating a bifurcation between our embodied or disembodied selves that I don't think exists. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And yeah. I would add to that um, or just extend what you're saying. Um, I, I feel like folks who are this generally kind of they resist high church liturgical forms of worship um, because they don't need that they don't sort of need it right it's just about the relationship with jesus and somehow they've deluded themselves to thinking that there's no mediation between themselves and jesus right and so when they allow themselves to remove those kind of like formative um, sometimes oppressive uh, for uh, yeah. liturgical structures, uh, but in, in their worship experience, they have just replaced it with market forces. Like there is something being <laughs> sold to you, right? Um, yeah. And and that's what's forming your ideology and and your sort of values about what um, faith is, right? Thus, the Christian publishing industry, and thus the whatever, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, and all these things yeah. that that come the people who sell fog machines to churches, right? And uh, you're you're right. sort of like 
you're still, you're no less liturgical. It's just, you've removed it from this church tradition, which has its drawbacks, right. I, I admit, um, and just replaced it with the kind of what are whims of the marketplace, right? And, and, exactly. I, and, and I feel yeah. like you are still embodying values, right? You just don't know where they're coming from, <laughs> right? And you don't understand right. that they can be destructive, right? And so that that's what I would add to what you said. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I'm not... Like I don't want to. I don't want to go to the temple. Um, yeah, <laughs> right? like, you're, not, not you're not advocating we rebuild that, right? No, yeah. No, I'm I'm advocating li- like we can design spaces to reflect the same thing the temple is trying to reflect, but from the other side of the incarnation and yeah. work of Christ, right? So, so fulfilled. So looking at it from the perspective of fulfillment, but also this isn't to say that there's only one way to do this, and I've got the right way to do it. There's a lot of, like, I have a deep appreciation for Gothic architecture, but I ultimately don't think it is, from my perspective, the best way to communicate via space to people because of the, again, like the separation between the minister and the people is so extreme, right? So like... Uh, and uh, there's a variety of ways it can be done. And then some, sometimes it's kind of just, I know good, I know it, it's good. I know what, when it's good and I know when it's not good and it's not always easy to articulate. Yeah. Um, but to put it in perspective too, when I started our church in its earliest days, we were meeting in our apartment. Is, is our apartment an ideal liturgical space? No. Um, did, did we do the best we could with it? Yes. Um, and did we move on when we had the opportunity? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <To> something better. <laughs> For so. sure. Yeah. And something sort of planned out. And, and and just to sort of anticipate another objection, I think you're already starting to do this um, with what you're saying about there not being kind of, you're not like... There is no sort of one size fits all for this, right? And and no. it is very important to understand that building any sort of a Western or American style church or Gothic or for that matter in like Ethiopian churches for Ethiopian congregants, right? Um, there's something kind of colonial and, and not respectful about their faith experience and, and sort of a yeah. faith. I mean, in the way that our worship spaces form our beliefs like that extends out to our geographies and our cultures right and so like yeah. christianity is portable enough to have its own very unique expressions in the very different places that it emerges right there's some some core things that are in common uh, of course across cultures but um we can make way too much of, of a lot of the kind of cultural baggage that goes along with right. with our Christianity, and that includes the church buildings. And so, I wouldn't necessarily right. want to see um, beautiful cathedral type buildings in other parts of the world. Name whichever one you like, right? Yeah. Um, and 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 I just I feel like that's something to kind of like um, that goes along with what you're saying here, right? There there is yeah. a way in which it has to be kind of like. An expression of a somewhat localized culture uh, and their yeah, authentic because the faith yeah. is adaptive yes the faith is adaptive one of my favorite examples of this is because um, I've, I've looked at a lot of different church architecture but um, there's the neo you know the gothic style of you know the really established European countries France and England etc but one of my favorite um, and this is not even going to a different continent this is still in Europe mm-hmm. is you just go up into the Scandinavian countries to, and see the stave churches. Have you ever seen one of those? No, no, I'm unaware. So you should look up stave churches. There's only a few left, but they're basically built by early Scandinavian Christians, and they're giant, tall wood structures 
where the inside, it, it can in some ways look similar to any other church you might have seen, but because they're building with wood, they can't do the same thing as you would do with stone. It's not on the same scale, but it is very uniquely representative of their culture. There's like the intricate carvings that they would do. And the, um, like, instead of stone statuary, they would have like face busts made carved from wood. They are incredible. Um, I'm looking at pictures as you're talking. Yeah. It's like something out of Lord uh, of the Rings. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and so this is just across the, the North Sea, right? Yeah. And, or the Baltic, whatever that is. And they are doing a unique, culturally appropriate form of church architecture yeah that still communicates many of the same things but in a specific unique way to their to their um culture and to their to their means frankly they, they didn't have stone or stone masonry to the level that they did further south right so they used what they had and with the skills that they had and yeah. made something great <laughs> and, and there's so. something like consistent i mean there's something methodically planned out from the theology um, uh, and the way that theology is embodied in that particular culture and region, right? Uh, and yeah. I think that's that's the key. Where I don't, I, I know that there'll be people um, saying that we're there's an elitist element uh, to what we're saying here, right? And, and there's a sure. tension to be navigated. Certainly, uh, I, oh, I, I think that that's definitely <laughs> true, right? Um, but I, I don't think either one of us are suggesting that there is a perfect church. That ever, but it's just sort of like it's the intentionality behind the design um, and what that is actually sort of emerging from and aimed at. And I would agree with you in general that um, a giant freeway sitting warehouse church, with, you know, with with is is not is more reflective of kind of suburban consumer culture than it is any other sort of like actual theological thing. Right. And so what is being formed and, and reaffirmed in the worship in those spaces is something that I think more people should think yeah. about. Yeah. And you know, I mean, there's an argument to be made that the churches are that size and that's the only space that would accommodate them. But that then gets into the question of how big churches should be. And that's probably not, <laughs> not where we want to go right now. We mentioned but. the church growth. Right. Right. So that's, right. that's a theological perspective. <laughs> that's what necessitates it. No, exactly. Right. So that's where those building designs come from is because of this sort of like business idea of church as a, right. as a, as a, as a nonprofit organization more than yeah. as a space. If of you're worship. not growing, you're dying. Yes, exactly. Right. And so no, <laughs> No, yeah. I, I, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I, uh, just to some, I feel like this is related to what we're talking about. <laughs> Forgive me if I don't make the connection clear enough, but um, I went upstairs again in the chapel. Like we're, I, I'm interested in the tensions, right? And uh -huh. I actually, it's, it's, it's embodied in the chapel above me. Um, so the chapel was built many years ago before Vatican II. And so the altar is this really beautiful, expensive thing that was donated to the school uh, for the chapel. Um, and so it's a beautiful work of art. So the altar for the original, the original altar um, is where it was. And so in before Vatican II, this is what, uh, Sister Benedict Joseph told me uh, when she gave me the tour. I think of the I know place. where you're going with this, by the um, way. But continue. It, <laughs> it's set up so that the priest is like facing away from the congregation towards the front, right? And then in Vatican II, that gets rearranged, and there's, the altar is now facing, so the priest is facing the congregation. So when Vatican II passes, they were faced with this sort of like. Um, dilemma they can't get rid of this beautiful historic piece of architecture right um but they want to maintain the current principles so they just build another altar and so they're both there yeah. right you know what i mean and i just think yep. 
as just sort of a, a space to look at a, a change in ideology and how that gets embodied in space. It's a really fascinating thing to me. And which one is yeah. right or which one is wrong is completely situated in the time in which they were built, right? Um, it, it, not only the space, <laughs> yeah. but the time it was built. And so I, I think it was just a fascinating um, like story. So I love to go up there and just look at yeah. that. Yeah, the, the local Episcopal Cathedral, which is just not that far from us here, um, same thing. They have this grand... 2000 pound marble altar on the far side of this neo-gothic cathedral um but then at some point they decided they wanted the altar to be a lot closer to the people so instead of having a way on the west end they they left it there but then put up another altar down by the the pulpit and um in a neo-gothic it's a cross shape so the the transepts is the crossing part okay. they put the the new altar down there so it's way much much closer to the people the idea being they want people they want to face the people and they want people to be able to hear them mm-hmm. while they're uh, um, blessing consecrating the elements whereas if they're on the far end there's no way anyone can hear them because they're they're literally hundreds of feet away right yeah um so there's uh, again there's a it's not just the space. There's also a liturgical and a theological statement being made with that as well. Yeah. I actually face away from the people, Mm. um, in, in our space. And the reason I do that is not because I can't pull the altar out. Certainly could. It's because in terms of spatial orientation, I'm not praying to the people. Mm. They're supposed to be facing you know, orientation wise, people can't see what I'm doing quotes with my fingers. Um, <laughs> they are facing God praying to him. And so in my mind, it makes sense that I too would then face with them. Interesting. I'm a representative of the congregation. I'm not above the congregation. Interesting. So I'm facing God with them, praying with them and on their behalf, asking God to do a thing. And so to me, theologically, it actually makes more sense when doing things like consecrating the Eucharist to be facing with in the same direction as the people rather than facing them so that this gets into all of these kinds of questions um but again i do think that there's it's not always as simple as people think it might be and it shouldn't be right i mean we we should be sort of always sort of wrestling with with our with our faith right and 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 thinking deep more deeply about it which creates these really interesting um theological perspectives And, and honestly what you just explained uh, there's something really beautiful about about you sort of joining the congregation um, rather than sort of speaking at them, right? And so I, I think that, that that's actually yeah. really, really, really super interesting. Uh, and, and a lot of the times people will say that's not, that's a more impersonal, right? Yeah. But then that to me raises the question, who, who <laughs> am I supposed to be prioritizing being personable to, to the people and speaking to them as if they're God? Or am I supposed to be like, Speaking to God, yeah, (laughs) right. So I mean, (laughs) they're not mutually exclusive. I'm not condemning priests who do it the the other way. Right, right. right. The point is, is that they're the that it's not um, it's not a simple either or. Like one is, um, it's not a simple either or. And I do. I mean, I would, I would argue that my way is right, but. And, and, but but, <laughs> but, I, but the, the other way has its benefits as well, right? And, and so. it's a tension that gets negotiated among people through time and space, right? And and, and, exactly. that, and that's and if you're ignoring that tension, um, you're just making a decision. And, and for what you just said, it reminds me for those evangelicals out there who remember the seeker sensitive uh, era, right? You know, this is <laughs> what, <laughs> right, what right. you're talking about, right? And where did that get us, right? We got Mark Driscoll was the was the high high. 
highest incarnation of that, right? <laughs> so right. get your garlic, um, folks. Your garlic and silver. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, I w- let me. I'm going to like call a uh, audible here in the um, in the spirit of the Super Bowl, uh, and I want to uh, hold off on your own particular experience renovating your church to kind of go to this Twitter thread since I think we're kind of yeah, talking about controversies now. Um, so Jake uh, Dobrin's um, great friend of the show too. Um, he's very, he says medium is the message Marshall McLuhan. Right. Um, uh, that, yep. that means physical spaces impact our theology and worship too. spaces show our value and impacts our values and impact our practices. Uh, and, and I think it's kind of along the lines of what we've been saying is this isn't sort of a unidirectional motion, right? It's both reflecting right. and sort of forming at the same time. And so that's how these changes happen slowly over time, right? But you, you do get right. this sense of, um, uh, of that kind of like more circular, uh, <clears throat> that dialectic, I suppose, between those two things. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, so this is something that I, I got into quite a bit with students. I was dealing with seventh and eighth graders, but I, I've never been the kind of teacher who pandered all that much. Yeah. So I really tried to push them and I would make them sit with a whiteboard yeah. and draw out the um, floor plan of their church sanctuary so that we could all see the difference. So it's, uh, I'm sort of building on what you're saying, this, this idea of the medium is the message. So let's just consider a couple different ways of doing things. So let, let's say first you've got your just long, straight, right? Pews. And at the end of it, you have two options. You have a pulpit in the center in one case, which communicates that the preaching is the central and most important thing that is about to happen. In my case, in an Anglican church or in Lutheran, Catholic, Orthodox churches, the altar is centered, communicating that um, while preaching is not unimportant, (laughs) preaching goes along with the central thing, which is receiving Christ in the Eucharist, receiving the very life of God, right? Then (laughs) there were many cases where kids would come from auditorium type and it would be built around a stage which had big screens above it. That and, and the most significant thing was really the band, really the worship experience. I mean, sure, there's like a small lectern or something not as imposing as a pulpit, though, right? It's the many people and many instruments used in doing music, right? I remember one student saying, coming in and drawing a picture of basically a room where all the chairs are just centered around or like in a big circle, right? Yeah. Concentric circles. And I was like, I, I mean, taught, discussing it, it became clear, okay, so community is the focus in your church mm-hmm. that is the, the highest priority is community not just outside the service but also in the service right because the, the whole point is it's just like educationally you're all sitting around in a big circle discussing yeah um so what what was the name of the gentleman's who uh, uh, jake. sent the tweet again? jake <laughs> jake yeah. yeah so jake's point is absolutely correct the medium is a message and um what we center people on is going to be communicative to them and it's not mutually exclusive it's not like an auditorium negates community or preaching it's not like the altar negates preaching or community it's not like community negates mm-hmm. altar or preaching either or teaching right like but there is a choice about emphasis that is happening 
And I mean, even just on that small level, and that's not even getting into other bigger architectural questions that we could get into, like height, stained glass versus statuary versus iconography, like in an Orthodox church, et cetera. I mean, yeah. there's a lot, or plain walls, like a Presbyterian church, yeah. white walls, nothing on them, yeah. right? Like that's theological as well as aesthetic. Yeah. I, years ago, my wife and I visited Scotland and we went to a church um, in Inverness when we were there and 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 I just thought it was really beautiful very simple right like that and so some of the folks greeted us afterwards and found out we were Americans and all that and, and so we were talking a little bit so it's a very beautiful church and he was like offended <laughs> and I said his church was beautiful he was like looking around no no it's supposed to be very simple so you're focused on up there right and I'm like I, I get right. that, but it's still beautiful in its simplicity is all I meant, right? <laughs> Sorry, dude, right? Uh, but Well, um. and there is that too. It does, I mean, so this is a question that comes up a lot is, um, so you, have you ever been in an Eastern Orthodox Yeah, church? I was going to talk about my uh, friend, uh, Tony Dragani, who works here. He's a, a deacon in the Eastern Catholic Church, actually. Um, and so right. he, um, I've been to his church and he's explained a few things to me, but go ahead. Well, just just to note with with the iconostasis, which folks don't know, is like a big screen between the altar and the nave where the people sit. Um, It is typically it and the walls of the church are typically littered with icons. That's the traditional Orthodox practice is that they're so typically in Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches I've been in. There's so many icons are tripping over them. Right. (laughs) It's just walls and walls of dead people, which is (laughs) which is great. And uh, the overwhelming use of gold, yeah. uh, uh, like gold typically is the preferred um, uh, color. Um, so there's lots of gold. There's lots of lushness. There's lots of Smells, iconography. The, the incense and all that kind of the stuff. Incense, so the smell. I mean, yeah. we have a sister church that uses incense, and uh, it's wonderful yeah. for folks, I mean, for, to, to use. Um, it's, it's intentionally, I think, in many ways, almost overwhelming to the senses, yeah. right? Now, can I look at that and say that it is a beautiful church with a clear communicative message about the value of worship? Absolutely. Is that what I would prioritize or the way I want to replicate in my own liturgies that I run? No, (laughs) because I do think there is something to the beauty and simplicity idea or a balance between the two. I appreciate iconography, but I don't. I don't think that much of it is necessarily what I want to be communicating or what my people would appreciate who are mostly evangelicals coming out of Hmm. that into a liturgical setting. Right. Um, Do um, is, is lush always better in certain cultural contexts. it, It is preferred. I don't know that it's better. I think it's, different and so there's always again these these questions of value and um i mean i don't know what your chapel looks like above you but i can imagine that it probably strikes somewhere in the middle as well yeah it's definitely in the middle of that really beautiful woodwork uh, from germany and really great um glass but it is is not like super ornate there's like the statues in a few places right but it isn't like it's very beautiful 
somewhere between those two extremes that you're talking about between the Presbyterian bareness and, um, and, uh, and, and what you're talking about in Eastern Orthodoxy. And I will say, I did a show with Varn a few years ago on the Tarkovsky movie, um, Andre Rublev, who's a mm-hmm. icon painter. So we talked a lot about Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, in, in that. And from that point on, then I started talking to Dragani, um, Father Dragani, I should call him, <laughs> publicly, I should call him Father Dragani, right? Um, but he, um, right, right. <laughs> um, he's explained to me, I mean, so it, it, it's reflective of a culture that I think is more, appreciative of kind of the magical uh, aspects mm. of, of faith, right? Um, the sort of transcendent aspects right. of faith, right? And so those bells and smells and all that kind of like, it, it has this temporally disorienting effect on you. You sort of walk into the space and it feels like you've exited modernity, right? And, and you're sort of entering into this right. sort of other realm. Um, and, and I think there's something really kind of beautiful and there's something very attractive to me about that, frankly, um, about that sort of like Likewise. exiting the modern, right? And so I will, um, I, I'm probably more appreciative of it, appreciative of it uh, than you are. Um, but your point is well taken. It is, all of these are to some degree uh, uh, subject to taste, right? <laughs> right. And so, yeah. And, well, and, I, and I think I, I do. I mean, we, I, I wear vestments. We have bells. Um, I haven't taken to doing incense yet, although I'm capable of it. Um, we, we need to get some icons. We haven't had the funds for them quite yet, but um, like I am appreciative of, of, of that way of doing things but there's there's that balance but again i think part of it is also a balance between um well there's a whole theology of course that promotes like the excess of icons right and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. but there's also i think um the idea of of bridging somewhat and meeting meeting people not in a secret sensitive way but meeting people in a a context where sure where they're prepared for that or not prepared for that as the case may be and it's 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 worth a longer debate but yeah it's it's certainly a a a large question we'll get to it actually maybe i'll just go to that question next someone who i actually don't go to the next one i I don't know this person they responded so i won't name them just for their privacy um but um this person tweeted i mean i guess it's not that private if he tweeted it but um uh, it's always (laughs) interesting to think about who is excluded from a sacred space as well is the space accessible and comfortable for all people uh the sacred can be exclusionary if it's created or populated with gatekeepers something along the lines of what you're just saying here i would slightly push back i don't think there's no such thing as no gatekeepers right your gatekeepers right. come from someplace. And if it's marketplace, if, if your ultimate goal is to be comfortable for quote, all people, then you have gatekeepers making sure that that's happening. Right. Um, and right. so, um, <laughs> I, I, I just, the, the, that idea that you can sort of somehow transcend, you know, any kind of, uh, uh, hierarchical decisions is, is just sort of, I think, um, it's fool's gold, I think on some level. And, and, and I think that, um, I totally agree with what he's saying here though, because I just happen to be more okay with make that selection. Like you are making decisions that are going to exclude some people, right? Um, now I'm not talking sure. about accessibility in like ADA um, in the in the ADA concept right, right, of things, right? That's a different right. um, topic, uh, object. But like, yeah, if if an Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox or Eastern Catholic Church, um, 
is doing that, it is making that decision that this isn't yes. for everybody, right? And, and there's something right, kind absolutely. of admirable about that. And so I, I think it's sort of along the lines of what you're just saying, um, this this gentleman on, on, on Twitter. Um, I, it was really helpful. I mean, I push back just slightly against some of the presuppositions of that statement, but um, sure. but I think it's, it's correct. I'm just probably more okay with it than they were. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're right. There is, I mean, at the basic, at a basic level, a baptism yeah. <laughs> is, is a gate, right? Yeah. Um, you yeah. can't take the Eucharist, uh, without being baptized, right? In my tradition anyway. Yeah. Um, and in tradition generally, like, what also, so like, right there, when, when you do one of these seeker sensitive churches that's open for everybody, quote unquote, it's not. It's, you're excluding no. old people at the very basic level who won't know what to do but, with a fog mean. machine. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You're, <laughs> you're choosing people who, so it, it's not, it's not open to everybody. It's open to everybody who's open to it, right? Like everything else. Right. So, <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if I'm up there in robes and I'm facing away and raising bread and breaking it and saying the body of Christ crucified for you, we, we sing a cappella because I don't have any musicians. So we sing hymns out of a hymn book, a cappella. That's what we can do. And I'm not a, I'm not a great singer. So like we just muddle through and do the best we can. <laughs> um, like we, that is not, um, our liturgy is high enough that people are some people will probably be weirded out and probably have been weirded out by it yeah um when they've come yeah <laughs> and that's okay and it's fine I mean, right they, yeah they've got sort of other <laughs> theological beliefs they've got other priorities um right and, and yeah i mean i have been crapping on the you know the big mega church uh structure but that isn't to say that it doesn't do some good for the people who are going there, right? Until Mark Driscoll starts beating you up, but um, but you know, <laughs> or hitting you with a bus or whatever. Yeah, running you over with his bus. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> talk about exclusionary, right? Um, and yeah, so, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, but uh, that's all I'm saying is I, I think that um, I, yeah, even I'm even willing to kind of offer you know understanding and, and hospitality, I suppose, to that. To me, that's the lowest form. It's yeah. the most thoughtless form of worship. And, and I don't I have much for it, yeah. but I, I do respect it on, on some level. Yeah, I would, I, would, um, I would push back against you in one area. Though. Okay, please, yes. And that is um, in the area of representation. Yeah. Now, this isn't always possible. Like, I have a church plant with, like, maybe 20 people. Um, and as of right now, in Eastern Washington, they're all white people mm-hmm. <laughs> from a from a generally like lower middle class background. Yeah. So obviously we're, we're by by necessity because we don't have as diverse a congregation yet as I would I, I would like to have. I think ultimately um, we're not going to have as much representation as we ought to. Same However, in Central PA here. Yeah. Right. 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 I mean, you, yeah, but the willingness to have that representation is important. So for example, no doubt. Um, what just even just lay people being able to do as many things as they are able to do. Like our, our tradition is a very uh, Catholic adjacent tradition, the Anglican church. So, you know, lay people can't do the Eucharist. They can't, you know, they're not allowed to baptize unless, it, um, unless like, there's no other option <laughs> to baptize someone, right? They, they, there's just certain things they're, they're prohibited from because those things are reserved for clergy, right? According to tradition and scripture in various spots as well, right? But there's a whole lot that they can do. 
So are we encouraging them to do those things, right? Are we encouraging both men and women to do those things? Yeah. Um, in my tradition, you don't have to be a priest or even a deacon to preach. Mm. So are we letting, are we raising up lay people to preach? Are we raising up men and women to preach? Would we allow or, or try to advocate and raise up someone who's like, say an African-American in our, in my congregation to preach or to read the scriptures or to help in the, in you know, preparing, um, and, you know, like acolyting during the liturgy. So we, um, I think we have to be conscious to some degree of that as well and saying this isn't just for well <laughs> if you're a complementarian type church then of course you're not going to let owen preach or be ordained <laughs> right, right right um but i'm not <laughs> and 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 i do think i do think it's important again just to say that people christians uh, be raised up all kinds of christians be raised up to do all the various things they're allowed to do a great example of this recently is um uh for those who i'm not really i'm not an evangelical but i'm an anglican but i do keep my pulse on it because i was raised that way yeah i have been an evangelical most of most of my life um and the whole beth moore fiasco yeah and and recently there was a shot of her that she's now attending her and her husband an Anglican church. Yeah. And there was a picture of her in acolyte garb, which is basically choir dress. And she was the lay reader for the day and read the scriptures. And a certain branch of complementarian Baptist were freaking out. Yeah. Because how, why is a woman up there in what they thought was priestly garb, even though it's, it's not, it's choir garb anyway, yeah. can wear it, reading the scriptures. And from our perspective, it's like, well, of course, anybody yeah. can read the scriptures up there. A kid, you can have a kid up there, you can have a woman, a man, it doesn't matter because it's not a, that's not a sacramental thing that's happening. It's just a human person reading right. the scriptures to other human people. Right. But that representation was is important too. It's important for my daughter to see a woman reading the scriptures yeah. up there or preaching. Yeah. Right? No, for sure. So, yeah. And and my mom, I mean, so I I'm uh, she's a minister, up, correct? She was. She retired. Yeah. Um, she's retired, but yes. Um, but yeah, so uh, I grew up Nazarene. Um, happened right. to still go to a Nazarene church. And the weird thing, Nazarenes are very conservative uh, theologically in most ways. I mean, you would sort of lump mm -hmm. them in with most kind of conservative uh, theo theologies. But they have ordained women from the beginning, right? And, and, right. Um, and it's been sort of a, a practice from – but even with that – People, there are people who have cultural biases against that, that are Nazarene, that somehow forget that it's okay for, <laughs> for a woman to preach <laughs> right. because they have more, their, uh, more of their politics are more adjacent to these more sort of Baptist traditions, right? Um, right. And, and so it, it's really, it's a really interesting thing. And I totally agree with you. And this is, I guess, going back to my point about um, uh, allowing for local culture to shape the the form of worship uh in the in the right. space of worship it totally like in cleveland we were in a multi-ethnic neighborhood and our congregation absolutely uh represented that right and and right. and the people up front absolutely represented that um and i totally agree with you i totally think that that is um yeah. uh, and, and there are ways i i can imagine that the theolog the uh, liturgical practices um would on some ways exclude people potentially right and there are right and that's how these things change over time though right is the theological right. practices over time adapt to sort of the new 
environment that it finds itself in, right? It isn't reconsidering our tradition. Yeah. 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 When you build a church in a place, it's going to represent the, the, the ideologies and the values of that time that it was built, right? Time changes around the building too. And the building has to change with the time. Well, my, my (laughs) building is very much a, 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 Example of that. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about that now. Uh, I don't want to keep you too long, and I have somewhere to be in oh, like no, ten minutes. Fine. So, did we, did talk we about... handle all the Twitter? There comments? was um, well, one more. Um, so, my okay. colleague from grad school, Dr. Kristen Kondalik, um, If you find me on Twitter, you can find this thread. She um, found uh, one of her colleagues actually uh, has written some academic work on this, uh, sort mm-hmm. of in the Byzantine tradition and, and iconography at that. So, if you want to kind of look into that, you can. But I do want to kind of point out one more. Oh no, Josh, uh, who also. Uh, is a good friend of mine on Twitter. He um, he mentioned James K. A. Smith, and I think we've already talked right. about that. And so, um, yeah, the whole formation thing is absolutely um, key. Cultural but, liturgies. Yeah, yeah. My friend uh, and sadly former colleague, he's now moved away, uh, Nathan McGee, uh, he actually, he's in theater, and he drew the comparison. I mean, that theater, that a lot of worship practices came out of ancient theater practices, right? Um, and the theater right. itself is a form of let's call it secular worship, right? Uh, and and I think that that's a, a really, really good point. There is a lot. I mean, when you think about the Oedipus play, that was basically their passion play, you know what I mean? And it right. was a ritualistic uh, uh you know, part of a feast, right. That they would go to and it functioned exactly. Participatory. Yeah. It, it functioned really, I mean, it, uh, very closely to what a lot of our particular like Easter um, uh services uh, function like and so he's totally right, right. about that um and so but uh but i think we've covered everything else beyond that thank you for everybody okay. who responded to that well, i want to hear about carter's uh i have like eight minutes before i have to leave i want to hear what carter's okay. experience here so <laughs> so so we um our diocese was able to help purchase a building for us um with the intent that we will eventually own it as our as our own parish but it's an old it's a it was uh, finished in 1909 so this building is very old. It's and it's an old Baptist church, mm. which of course ends up raising uh, certain space constraints that we've had to figure out as an Anglican church, right? So, yeah. but um, it's a it's a very old building. It's it's a wood building. Um, but it's it's uh, considered a carpenter Gothic, which is basically when someone wants to have a semi Gothic type style, but they only have wood to work with and yeah, not yeah. stone. Um, so it's this big square and, and our church is St. Aidan's Anglican church in Spokane, Washington. If anyone's interested in looking at the building, we have a little, a little bit on there with a picture of it, but, um, it is very much a reflection of its time. So just, um, some of the challenges, uh, that we've faced one is that Baptist churches of that period were all built at almost like a split level. You walk in the door and there's stairs up and stairs down. There's no wheelchair ramp. And so we are currently unable to have folks with um, physical disabilities. And we're, we're working on trying to raise funds to put in a wheelchair ramp, but it's going to have to be like 80 feet long. It's going to be enormous, right? Yeah. Um, these places didn't come with bathrooms. Mm. The only plumbing that goes into the sewer is under the baptistry at the very front of, or at the very end of the sanctuary. That's yeah, sacrilegious. <laughs> sure is. We can't use that, <laughs> right? Because we bless water. We can't stick it in the right. sewer, right? Um, it also means that any plumbing we want to put in, we have to run to that core source, mm. which meant like 80 feet of, you know, pipe to put in a modern bathroom 
right? Mm. So like these are, I mean, these are just some of the practical constraints, but some of the more interesting things, I mean, there's a lot of practical problems that I face. Uh, don't even ask me about the electrical issues we've faced along the way, let alone the plumbing. But um, it's, it's what, what's really um, interesting is how you can see the marks of different eras on it. Mm. So at one point they replaced the windows that would have been an older style wood window that you could open and let air blow through because um, during the summer, because they obviously didn't have air conditioning. Um, they replaced those in the seventies with like these not very well sealed, <laughs> like kind of that wavy colored glass. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, the beautiful plaster uh, sort of vaulted ceiling is you can't see it from the sanctuary because they put a drop ceiling in for so heating purposes. Drop ceiling, yeah, for heat purposes. Yeah, probably because they replaced the windows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that's all. Um, so like, in my ideal world, um, at some point we have removed that drop ceiling. We've replaced the windows, and we've uh, the whole dais stage area needs to be renovated and restored put in a wheelchair ram like there's all kinds of things that need to happen to make this a space suitable for us in, um, as a modern church right at the same time this is um this is a beautiful like reflection of, like i said of these different eras of the german immigrants who built it of the african-american church that was in there for decades before um it went vacant um it also happens to be in um in a gentrifying neighborhood that's also still on the edge of one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. That's my so it's on the edge of one Cleveland, of the poorest yeah. neighborhoods. <laughs> right. While up from it, what used to be a poor neighborhood is now gentrified. So there's we're right on the like the the borderline between yeah. these two clashing cultures. But the building is really it's really fascinating. So I mean, what do you want to hear about? You want to hear about the liturgical aspects or like... Well, no, I mean, what you've described... As, yeah, I mean, but yeah. what you've described already is... Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at is these... There are like practical concerns that have to be... I mean, they don't have to be, but you're cho rightly choosing to um, hold them against theological concerns, right? Uh, and and right. like, and, and I think that that's a really interesting tension that, I mean, there are sort of, yeah, you definitely got to get a wheelchair ramp. You got to find some way to accommodate yeah. people <laughs> at that, at that level. Right. And, and, and you've really, um, you've got to also take care of sort of just the basic, the building has to, the roof has to stay up. Right. <laughs> and so you, right. Yeah. The lights on. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, that's kind of what I wanted to hear um, about like, and so as it is right now, how, how has the, the state of the building as it is right now affected the liturgical practices um, and maybe sure. kept you from doing things that you would like to do or encouraged sure. you to do things that you hadn't thought to do? Sure. Well, I mean, on one, on one hand, we, the, um, the neighbor we have who is in a wheelchair and wants to come to church, I, I, she can't. And I hate that. And so I, you know, I do what I can to minister to her. Um, and tr still trying to figure out how we can get a wheelchair because we're a small church yeah. without a lot of money. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like there's, there's things like that. It, it does, you know, there's prohibitive things with ministry. We had to put a bathroom in, which was, um, which was, it's still not finished. It's functional, but it's not finished, which was, it required running 80 feet of pipe. I mean, it was a lot. It was a big project. Yeah. Um, uh, the place bleeds heat. 
Yeah. So during the winter and during like the the periods where the heat, where the temperatures in the teens, um, it's cold. I mean, I'm in three layers of vestment robes, so I'm usually okay. <laughs> um, but one of our parishioners went and made fleece blankets so that when it gets real cold, people can put blanket over their legs. Now that's interesting. That's interesting, <laughs> right? though, right? And yeah. and I can imagine like a really like. I don't know, early Scandinavian church, how that sort of thing becomes just practice out of necessity. And then after a generation, it becomes part of the theological, uh, like part of the liturgy. You right. know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. <laughs> the liturgy of the blankets, right? Well, yeah. how did we get this liturgy of the blankets? <laughs> well, it's because we we're all freezing our butts off back in the 2020s, right? Yeah. Um, and so, like, uh, when it comes to liturgy, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, traditionally you have like these long, narrow spaces, right, where you process down. This is a square building, and so it's a wider, like a broader, shorter sanctuary space. Our processions don't take but 30 seconds, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So we've had to, you know, we adjust. I, I don't start processing until we're almost done with the hymn (laughs) because otherwise I'm just going to be, I'll be standing there singing in the front rather than before the processional. Um, It's uh, so, you know, heating the place has been difficult Um, figuring out um, how to distribute the Eucharist when the pews are only a few feet from the dais Mm. um, and a kneeler takes up a lot of space. So like figuring out how, how to do that, how to work, um, how to work around um, uh, accessibility issues, like I was saying yeah. uh, before. These were these have all been considerations as we've gone on, as well as um, prioritizing what are we going to work on? What are we going to do to make Right now, it is so beat up on the outside, it looks like it's out of an Edgar Allan Poe story. Mm. It looks like a pretty creepy bats in a belfry kind of church. And we need, so we need to paint it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like these are the kinds of practical considerations, but also liturgical ones that are important. Um, blocking off the baptistry because it serves no function for us. We can't baptize people in there. Yeah. It's kind of creepy anyway, so I wouldn't. And it, but the, otherwise, it's just like when I'm up there, the baptistry is just beyond where I normally, where the altar is. So if it was open, it would just be this big dead space. Yeah. That serves no purpose really it just it'd be a visual hole yeah. with nothing really in it to engage people so right now we have it covered up because it, it just doesn't make sense for it to be open yeah. because it, it it would serve to distract because it serves no purpose yeah yeah rather than serving to add something right so hiding it is the better option yeah. <laughs> right now but, yeah. So anyway, those are some of the kinds of things we've had to, you know, adjust to in a space like this. Well, that's interesting. And Elton, who I mean, I'll circle back as we close this um, episode out, um, sure. had given me an essay about some Canadian. It was from uh, old churches that are abandoned in Canada and and the way they're being sort of repurposed mm. because these churches and this is probably we, we're ending at the beginning of a new really interesting episode probably um, the the role <laughs> that these church churches these old buildings these spaces serve for the communities right they especially in older right. um, communities they are sort of like community center hubs right and and so the fact that yeah. your church and you are um, dedicated to sort of revitalizing this very important like space for the community is, is really laudable. And um, Carter, I've really enjoyed this, uh, this conversation. I've really learned a lot and, um, and and I really thought it was really, really great. And I hope everybody listening um, did as well. I, I, I'm all about, 
understanding that there's a tension that we're navigating between tradition and the new, right? Absolutely. And and, uh, yeah. and so uh, if you have any kind of feedback, you're not going to offend me by sending it off my way. So um, for Carter Stepper, my name is Danny Anderson. Thanking everybody for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.